It's a frightening scripture reading, isn't it? It's only frightening when you realize who he's talking to. He looked him right in the eye and told him, you have never heard God's voice and you have never seen his form. What makes that frightening is that he was speaking to the brightest and the best Bible students of his day. We live in a time that we have labeled what? What do we, what do we call these times that we're living in? We're living in the time of what kind of days? The end times, the last days. In Greek, the, the word is eschaton. It's where we get our word eschatology from. It's a neat sounding word. I remember the first time that I ever saw in Northern California, in the Sacramento area, a very, very large uh, network of retirement communities, and they were called eschaton. Literally, people were moving into these retirement communities in order to live out their last days. Then I moved here and I thought, well, that's true. It's just not a very nice thing to say in mixed company, is it? That if you're living in your retirement and one of those places, you're living your what? Last days. Eschatology is the study of the last days. And that's what we're living in. And that's what we find this challenge of living in the last days to be. And that is, we've been studying what church we want to belong to, right? Because in the last days, the war is not between the church and the world. The war is between good and evil, but the war, the war is not between the church and the world. The war is between two churches. A true church, the church of the lamb that was slain, and what was the other one? A false church. We call it the church of the beast, but actually it's not the beast, is it? It's the church of the dragon that manifests itself with these two beasts, both of them together, not just one beast, both of them. That's where we've been, haven't we? So I began this series with another look at these last days and these churches, Revelation 13. I wanted to revisit, check in where we might be in our apocalyptic understanding of where we are and who we are and who they are in the last days. So in that study along the way, about three weeks ago, I introduced this idea and this concept called Christian nationalism and how many of our teachers, our authors, religious liberty leaders, and I myself, see that this beast from the land, the second one in Revelation 13, is manifested very, very well, very well in this historical American argument that America becomes that civil power that the church hooks up with in the last days. Before, it was, it was a mixture it, for 1,260 years, 1,260 years. The very first beast, it was, it was Roman Catholic and it was Protestant. People that hooked up with civil powers, a church that, that brought those powers together. By the way, in the book of Daniel, it's a power that he can't even imagine. It's a power that makes him sick when he's exposed to it. It's a power that absolutely terrifies him when he sees it. So in the last days, the power, the power part for us just happens to be America. It's the same power of the old world. We just put a new coat of paint on it. We re-identified it. We hijacked it. Painted it red, white, and blue. And here we are. 
Christian nationalism is a perfect title, for it describes it. Blurred lines and boundaries as to where they begin and end. Where do the church boundaries end and the national part begins? Where do the national part end and the church boundaries begin? Those lines are completely blurred. For those who take part, we've been down the road of the national part. For those that believe that America reflects a Christian ideal, that the Constitution is as sacred a document as our scriptures, or that God favors America in all her endeavors, it's a myth. The difference in the two churches, the lamb that was slain and the beasts, the difference is their definition of power and how they use it. The fundamental understanding of what power is and what it is used for. I quoted from this book a couple weeks ago to get an idea of it. Her name is Catherine Stewart. From her book, The Power Worshippers, she tells us this, Christian nationalism is not a religious creed, but a political ideology. It promotes the myth that the American Republic was founded as a Christian nation. It asserts the legitimate government rests not on the consent of the governed, but on adherence to the doctrines of a specific religious, ethnic, and cultural heritage. It demands that our laws be based not on the reasoned deliberation of our democratic institutions, but on particular idiosyncratic interpretations of the Bible. Its defining fear is that this nation has strayed from the truths that once made it great. It's a, an ideology based on fear. That we were once a great Christian nation and that is our problem now, is that we've strayed from it. It's a myth. In commenting on this book, Alan Reinach, the religious liberty director of the Pacific Union, uh, Union of Seventh-day Adventists says this to remind us that a Christianity of, Christianity of Christian nationalism is not Christianity at all because it's a Christian religion without the biblical Jesus, without Christ's teachings, no beatitudes, no blessed are the poor, blessed are the peacemakers, no love your enemy, love your neighbor, or beating your swords into what? Plowshares. By the way, nationalists don't do away with those scriptures. What they do is they sand them down. And when they want to, they, they say, I, I, you know, Grady, we talked about it. We say, I think he's speaking metaphorically there. Instead, it's an idolatrous patriotism that confuses American power with the kingdom of God. So where does the church claim? Where is the church supposed to claim where they get their power and authority? Where do we get our power and authority from? From scripture, right? We're supposed to be a what kind of church? A Bible-based church. I hope we're going to get at that myth too today. That our goal not become to be a Bible-based church. That's what I want to get at today. That's what I want to uncover today. So in order, for, in order to get a worshiper of the lamb that was slain to worship the beast, then something has to be done with the authority of what? Of the authority of the Bible, that's right. If I want to get 
If I want to lure away somebody who claims to be a worshiper of the lamb, what I need to show them is how worshiping the beast could be found where? In the Bible. Has the beast accomplished that? Has he accomplished that with our scriptures? To make the Bible say something that it doesn't. To make it look like it says something that it doesn't. I had a dear friend when I first became a pastor, he told me once, he took me aside and said that he had been spending a great amount of time memorizing scripture. And the reason that we should be memorizing scripture is because we believe that in the last days, the scripture will be taken away from us because that's what happened the first time. That's how the first beast got away with what he got away with, right? And he's passed on now, but I, have, I would have to say, and maybe he'll never know that I have to disagree with him. I don't think scripture is going to be taken away. Not taken away. How much more effective would it be to leave the scripture here and make it say something that it doesn't. I think that's a much more effective deception than trying to take it away, amen? I don't think you're gonna be able to take it away. I got 37 Bibles right here, and that's without it hooked up to the internet, 37. If I hook it up to the internet, all I have to do is type in biblegateway.com, and I now have 500 Bibles. So when I got my computer and my phone and my iPad in my backpack, I've got 1,500 Bibles I'm carrying around. I don't think they're going to take it away. I think the second beast says, why don't we hijack it for our purposes? And that's what I want to talk about today. Because I shared with you a few weeks ago that how I believe Adventism was set up specifically to combat the, the deception of this second beast. How we, were, uh, we became a people that arose in order to do that. Remember I told you that before? Today is one of those days. How was Adventism set up to combat this particular uh, deception of the beast hijacking our scripture? This was one of, supposed to be one of those ways. Maybe this sounds familiar to you. The Holy Scriptures, Old and New Testaments, are the written word of God. Amen? You can amen that. That's pretty good, right? Given by divine inspiration through holy men of God who spoke and wrote as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In this word, God has committed to man the knowledge necessary for salvation. The Holy Scriptures are the infallible revelation of his will. They are the standard of character, the test of experience, the authoritative revealer of doctrines, and the trustworthy record of God's acts in history. Seventh-day Adventist fundamental belief number one. That's why it sounded familiar. Y'all heard it before? All scripture is what? Inspired. This is why we believe that the Bible is the word of God. All scripture is inspired by God, useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. That Greek word there is a beautiful word, theopneustos, combining the Greek word for God, theos, and the other word for air or for wind, noustos. 
In other words, literally, it was God breathed into each man. I've shared with you before that I spent 18 years in radiology. I took x-rays for 18 years. The most common x-ray taken in diagnostic radiology used to be the chest x-ray. And radiologists wanted to see how how your lungs would expand when they looked at that x-ray. So we would tell everybody not to move and to take a deep what? Deep breath. Right now, everybody, take a deep breath. You've just been inspired. And that's the mystery of inspiration, by the way. Was that these men, when they sat down to write what we have as our scriptures, God literally told them, I will be your breath. I will get in you the same way that your air gets in you and then does what it does. And if you think that we understand that process anymore today because we have CT scans and MRIs, that they, that they understood it back then, it's still a mystery, right? Dr. Palmer could give us anatomy and physiology lessons on how we can oxygenate our blood, but that doesn't explain how it happens, does it, Dr. Palmer? It's a miracle. God actually breathing into us is a miracle. See, the, see, the Holy Spirit, he decided, was not going to be just some entity that just hovered or flew around. For him, inspiration, the Holy Spirit needed something physical to place his effect on. He decided that it would be us. Anything that has life has been inspired by the Holy Spirit. God didn't want the Spirit just floating around somewhere. So in the Old Testament, or in the Hebrew scriptures, in the former testament, that spirit or that connection found its way into the prophet's mouth. In the New Testament, that mouth finds its way to paper, papyrus to be exact. The Greek word is graphe, writing, writing a document. It's a new method by the first century. Of, of giving information. In Jesus' day, the oral tradition was much more authoritative. Many Jewish scholars had the, old, the entire uh, Hebrew scriptures memorized. The average Hebrew student, the average rabbi, at least had the Torah memorized in Jesus' day. Oral tradition was much more effective than written. Writing was brand new. Nobody trusted it. But about 20 years after the resurrection, The world begins to move more towards writing becoming the mode of spreading information. But it's starting slowly. So when it came time to spread the gospel, the the New Testament founders, if you will, they decided to begin to write it down. And they decided to use Greek, which at the time was a universal language. In other words, everybody in the world spoke Greek. It's much like today in international finance. If you want to make it in international or global finance, what language do you need to speak? English. English, that's right. Greek was like that back then. Writing, by the way, was not taught to everybody. They were called emanuensis. They had this special skill, extremely special skill, because it was hard to do. 
It was hard to get the instruments. It was hard to, to make the letters. It was actually hard to do. If you think Paul wrote all of his letters, I'm sorry, you're wrong. Because in Romans 16, the, the secretary, the amanuensis, the graphical writer, if you will, he is so moved by Paul's scripture that he just wants to let you know that he wrote it. I, Tertius, the writer of this letter, greet you in the Lord. I think it's so cool that as Paul is greeting everybody in the church at Rome, that the amanuensis wanted to speak up and greet them too. Paul does it as a hobby. By the time he writes down Galatians, he says, see what large letters I make when I'm writing in my own hand. It's like, like, it's like he asked the amanuensis, he asked, can I, can I give it a shot? Can I give it a try? I've been practicing. And he said, I'm not good at it because you're going to see that my letters are huge. Which, if you remember, when we learned to write, you remember how big the lines were that they gave us to write into? They gave us a pencil as big as a horse's leg? Right? It wasn't easy to do, especially because of what papyrus was made of. Papyrus were mats where you took the, the reeds and you flattened them with hammers. And then you, you wove them in to make mats out of, and then you hammered them out. And then you glued those together. Paper was expensive, it was hard to make, it was hard to write on. Ink was soot from the oil lamps. Soot and gum that they would mix together from the oil lamps. The pen was a reed, the same reeds, but they would cut them to a point. Scribes would sit in a room and have them dictated to them. They were all done by hand. Today's Bible, if you wanted to make a brand new translation, say, say uh, you, you wanted to make a translation, you have about 5,000 manuscripts in various forms to be able to choose from. The oldest are papyrus manuscripts from the second century. We don't have one original. 1,900 years old, here's a picture of one of them. Notice, no spaces between words. Notice, no punctuation. Because paper was so expensive, you didn't have room for margins. You wanted to put as much as possible on the page. When I go back to look at notes in, in say, seminary that was 25 years ago, there were some that I actually was stupid enough to take in pencil. I look at those today, 20 years, with a real pencil and real paper, and I can barely read them myself. So what happens to all these manuscripts? It's why most of them are found in Egypt. They're found in the driest locations. The Dead Sea Scrolls were kept preservation because they were rolled up and they were inside jars, but also because they were around the Qumran region, which is the driest on earth. What happens if you get just a little bit of moisture amongst your books and your paper? Five thousand of them, by the way, no two of them are identical. In some places, there are 10 possible ways to translate a particular, a particular text. It's a miracle we have a Bible at all. And if you think, 
If you think that uh, we only have the Bible because it was preserved, then you didn't just listen to this entire process over the past 2,000 years. We do not have it because it was in a dry climate, because it was written in, in X or Y or anything like that. I'm talking, these, these things were written with ink made from soot. And we still have them today, 1,900 years later. It's like believing that the ark saved Noah and his family. That little matchbox floating around in an ocean saved Noah and his family. No, remember the next verse. And God remembered Noah. Right? That's the only reason why we have it. Ten different ways to translate. No two of these are the same. Wait, wait, Pastor Greg. The fundamental belief says they are an infallible revelation of his will. Yes, it does. But notice, we were very careful in wording that fundamental belief. We never said the words were infallible. We said the process was infallible. His inspiration was infallible. See, infallible words would imply a type of inspiration, which by the way, many, many evangelicals, a lot of people believe in, called verbal inspiration, which means, verbal inspiration means the words themselves were inspired by God. In other words, that these 25, holy, these 25 or so holy men, okay, he just dictated into them the same way that you and I would dictate into some sort of voice recorder. Which, by the way, if he did it that way, why would he need to imbue any of the writers with the Holy Spirit? Right? We never bought into verbal inspiration. Well, at least we began that way. There have been times when there are great groups of Adventists who never ever believed in what you would call the infallible Bible, the infallible word. By the way, it's tough to stand by. It's tough to defend. It really is. Can you make a mistake and still be inspired? That's been the argument of the Adventist church for about 150 years now. Because we've argued that about the Bible writers, we've argued that about Ellen White. Can you make a mistake and still be inspired by God? Let's take a look. Let's take a look. In sending out of the disciples, in Matthew they're instructed to take no staff and no sandals. Right? No staff and no sandals. In Mark, they're instructed to take a staff. In Luke, they're instructed to take no staff. Which one's lying? Which one decided to go against God's words and write down something different? Matthew, Mark, or Luke? The temptation in the wilderness is only given in two of the gospels. In Matthew, Jesus is given three temptations, right? Three temptations. In Luke, he's given the same temptations, but he changed the order of the last two. Which one's lying? Which one decided to go against God and make a mistake? In the region of the Gerasenes, they come across the demoniac. Remember that story? That he lives out in the cemetery because nobody can be around him and he keeps breaking away chains, right? Matthew says there are two of them. Mark and Luke say there were only one. So 
So, so far I've just messed with the writers themselves, right? What if we did it with Jesus? When David comes, to, when Jesus tells the story of David coming to the most holy place to ask for sword and bread because he's running from Saul, remember that story? In Mark, Jesus says the priest's name was Abiathar. Jesus says the priest's name was Abiathar. Samuel says his name was Ahimelech. Jesus or Samuel? Which one made the mistake? In Acts, Stephen, the first deacon of the church and who would become the first martyr for the gospel, is brought to trial for blasphemy. They're having problems with him. Why? Why are they having problems convicting Stephen of heresy? It's because they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the what? And the spirit in which he was speaking. Stephen was filled with who? With the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. He decides to use a wonderful tactic. I think it's brilliant. I can't wait to congratulate it on him. He looks at the boys to think of the good old days. He looks at the good old boys of the religious leaders and gets them to think of the good old days. He begins by talking about Abraham. And he takes them through a, a particularly well, uh, well put down a well profiled history of God's people all the way up until where they are today. And just as those boys are getting ready to pat themselves on the back for being nothing more than related to Abraham, he nails them. It's a great tactic. But at the beginning of the story, Stephen said that God came to Abraham before he lived in Haran. And Moses says in Genesis 11 that he came to him after he was living in Haran. Filled with the Holy Spirit, and he made a what? He made a mistake. Should this strengthen our faith in our scriptures or weaken it? What do you think? Well, it all depends on what we're using our scripture for, huh? If I'm looking for some sort of authority, especially an absolute authority, then I think this argument weakens it, which, is why, which was why maybe I adopted a long time ago that the words really are inspired, that God inspired every word. God said it, I believe it, and that's good enough for me. The argument ends here. See, if I'm using my scripture for that, then I'm weakened by all of this information. But that isn't supposed to be what we're using our scripture for, is it? How badly do we want the Bible to be inerrant is just asking ourselves our question, why? Why do I need it to be? Why do I want it to be? My opinion, we should rejoice. We should rejoice when it's pointed out and that it would be stronger faith in the Bible for two reasons, for two reasons. Number one, the first reason, Let's, let's, let's make it uh, the most obvious, if you will. These errors or contradictions, as we've discussed, what do they change? What do they change in the big picture? According to the fundamental belief, we use it for faith, doctrine, or, or to strengthen the character of God. 
Did any of those mistakes that the Bible writers made, and I put mistakes in quotes, did it change anything? Did it strengthen or, or weaken our faith or our doctrine? Does it lessen the character of God in your eyes? Does the name of the priest matter to Jesus' point that their Sabbath keeping, by the way, that their keeping of the Sabbath according to the letter of the law, according to the fourth commandment, was loveless and was not compassionate and had no mercy, which then makes it a violation of the law itself, by the way. They believed they were keeping the law while being, having no compassion or mercy on anybody which makes it then, even if you keep the letter perfectly, it makes it a violation of the very law you believe, we believe, we're keeping perfectly. Does the name of the priest matter to Jesus' point? No. All that mattered was he was the high priest. That's what mattered. Does it take away the fact that Jesus was God's power and authority in the flesh? on whether or not he cast out two demons or one? Does it matter? Does it change the fact that Jesus gave that power and authority to his followers or change that power or authority if they took an extra staff or uh, an extra pair of sandals? Does it matter? See, to the contrary. I believe when shown the human element and the imperfection of inspiration, I'm strengthened. I rejoice because that means God's purpose is that he will love and will always love and give grace to those of us imperfect, but also make us an invital part of the revelation and inspiration of his word. He won't do it without us. He's had 2,000 years to correct those mistakes. And yet here we are. Shows me how God feels about the quote-unquote mistakes. Because this view, the inspiration of the thought, if you will, of the thought or the process or the feeling and the emotion, using the Bible writer's background, using his cultural eyes, using his his mastery or non-mastery of the language, using all of that, and saying, that's still my guy, that's still my pen man. To believe that, it leaves room, y'all. It leaves room for us to grow. I've pointed out to you before, I've got nothing, no problem with tradition. None. Unfortunately, tradition begins to stand in the way and it begins to inhibit our growth. We can't move beyond it because we have somebody telling us, hold on, that's God's word and he doesn't make any mistakes. We need room. If you and I believe that we were put on this earth to grow and to be more like Jesus, we need that room, don't we? See, in the story of the healed paralytic, you remember they, The paralytic had friends who wanted to bring him to Jesus for him to be healed. And he got to the house, and there's such a crowd, there's no room. So what did they do? They took him up on the roof, right? And they dismantled the roof, 
and they lower the paralytic down in front of Jesus. When they could not, in Mark, it's told this way, when they could not bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And after having dug through it, they let down the mat on which the paralytic lay. How did they get through the roof? They dug through it. It's an Israeli house. It's in the region of the Galilee. It means it has a mud and a thatched roof. You can dig through it. When Luke tells the story, it says, but finding no way to bring him because of the crowd, they went up on the roof, let him down with his bed through the what? Through the tiles. What happened? There's no tiled roof in the Galilee. Not in the first century. You have to remember who Luke is writing his gospel for. Luke's gospel begins. I begin, he says, writing down in an orderly fashion everything that I've heard. You have to remember that Luke learned all of the scriptures and learned all of the stories by traveling with Paul, right? So he said, I began writing down. I began asking people and I began writing down everything that I knew about Jesus. This is my biography for Jesus. And then he uses the words, for you, my dear friend, Theophilus. You can't get any more of a Greek name than Theophilus. He's writing it for a friend who probably lives back in Athens who would have no idea what a thatched roof is. So he gave the roof what? Tiles, which every roof in Greece, at least in in Luke's social circle, has what? Tiles. God is willing to use the cultural aspect in order to get people to understand, to be able to adopt and edit the thoughts and the words to explain those they want to reach, to explain those that they are called to reach. Mark is a gospel that's written mostly for a, for a Jewish bent of an audience. Luke, he's writing for his Greek friend, Theophilus. God gave Luke and Mark the editorial license, if you will, to be able to write it to make it as clear as possible to them. Isn't that wonderful? One thing that it isn't though, is that it doesn't allow it to be infallible. It doesn't allow it to not what we would consider mistakes. See, Paul says that if you wanna live by the letter of the law, you go right ahead and give it a try. But don't, don't, just remember this, he says. Just remember what you've signed up for. If you want to live by the letter of the law, okay, you're going to have to keep how much of it? All of it. Because there are no, uh, there's no almost in keeping the law. It's not horseshoes or hand grenades. He says that if you mess up just once, you've broken what? You've broken it all. And that's the perfection part. If you want to believe in an inerrant, inerrant, infallible, verbally inspired Bible, then you're going to have to deal with these mistakes. And you're going to have to call them mistakes. And you're going to have to begin to call one of these guys a liar. And you may even have to call Jesus a liar. You willing to look at Moses in the eye and say that he was a liar? You with me? Are you feeling me? Feeling this? That's why we didn't. That's why we never adopted it. 
The only way that this can be done to make it perfect with using a, a fallible receptacle, if you will, the only way it could be done is you've got to remove it from the tablet and the page in order for it to have life. It lives in Luke's identity and his culture. It lives in his lungs. God says, I'll breathe into those lungs, but it lives in his, which makes it perfect. I rejoice that he still uses us as his partners to do that. And you can't do that. You can't do that with verbal inspiration. You can't believe that the Bible is verbally inspired and still be able to have that room and that which God calls perfection. We don't matter to God because we're perfect. We matter to God because he loves us. And if we believe that he loves us, then guess what? He calls us perfect. spirit of prophecy, speaking of end time people, the end time people are the ones that have the spirit of prophecy and the testimony of Jesus. The spirit of prophecy is the testimony of Jesus. God's willingness to be with and to be in every human being. That's the spirit of prophecy. That he's willing to walk and talk with us. If we would simply believe that. The word became flesh. He's always looking to enter our lives. He's always looking to get back that relationship that was lost. It's not based on some human idea of infallibility, but it's not based on our imperfection. It's based on his perfection. This fact should be the only thing that shapes our idea of present truth. Present truth isn't digging a way back It's looking to the future to be able to grow. It isn't adhering and continuing to try to adhere to a tradition that may be dead because everything else changed and everybody else grew. It's looking forward. By the way, I'm not against looking back. I've been looking back for 14 weeks now, right? But the reason, the main reason we look back is to see where we erred so we can correct it and grow and move on. By the way, that's where I believe revival and reformation is. It's there, not there. The fact that he's willing to continue to reveal himself, but will we accept the revelation? I think that's what it means to live in the end time. And to bring the argument down then to as to what we're looking at when we look at, say, Christian nationalism as being a manifestation of this second beast, which way do you think is easier to make it happen for a people that believe in a verbally inspired Bible or for people who believe in the thought or emotion inspired Bible? It's a whole lot easier for the verbally inspired because verbally inspired allows me to leave it on the page. No contextualization. No changing, no, no, no looking into things, no, uh, nothing, none of that. God said it, I believe it, that's good enough for me. For people that believe that, it's a whole lot easier for a nationalist to try to get them to say what the Bible doesn't say. 
For the other people, for the other people who are looking in the ultimate fulfillment of the scriptures, the word not on the page, but that became flesh, we've got Jesus. And he's not going to let us get away with that, is he? So how do we get this way, though? How do we get to where there are a great uh, amount of people, of Adventists, who actually believed today, who actually believed today in a verbal, verbally inspired Bible? George Knight, professor of church history, emeritus at Andrews University, also who I believe is probably the most profound, prolific historian of Adventist history, if you will, says that in the 1920s, this was a watershed in American religious history. Because for more than 50 years, all Protestantism, American Protestantism, had been building to a major break between what was coming to be known as, uh-oh, liberalism, modernism, between that and fundamentalism. The battle would come to a head on at least eight issues. Eight issues. The inerrant or the verbal inspiration of an inerrant Bible, the historicity of the virgin birth, the necessity of the substitutional atonement of Christ, historicity of, the, of Christ's resurrection from the dead, his premillennial return, which by the way, most of the evangelicals don't believe anymore. They believe in postmillennial return. authenticity of miracles, uniqueness of the Christian uh, revelation of salvation, and divine creation by fiat as opposed to theistic evolution. This is what the fundamentalists said you had to have in the 20s in America in order to be a Christian. Adventists could get on board with seven of those. Guess which one we could not get on board with? The inerrant scripture. We could get on board with seven of them. We couldn't get on board with verbal inspiration. We never espoused it. We never espoused it. Although there were several leaders who did. Yes, you could, you could come back to me with S.N. Haskell and W.J. Prescott and A.T. Jones. Yes, they were espousing it. But as of officially in the Adventist church, in 1883, we were still on record of thought versus verbal inspiration. But the war for Christianity in America was coming. Which, by the way, I should, what I should say is the perceived war of Christianity in America was coming. We'll talk about this in a couple of weeks, but I think that that's the problem today, too. Is that a Christian nationalist uses fear to try to get us to believe that Christians are being persecuted. Not in this country. Certain kinds are. And there are certain uh, uh, nationalists are being persecuted by those who are called liberal, right? Or, or, or um, you know, modern, right? They believe they are. But again, it's based on fear. It's based on a war that doesn't happen. So if we wanted to be on the right side of this, if we wanted to stand up for the other seven doctrines or, or, you know, well, then we, we were basically sent into the arms of these fundamentalists. We were sent running into them because we didn't want to be known as anybody uh, who'd done all those. And by the way, the strongest voice, the strongest voice for the more moderate view of inspiration in 1920 
had died in 1915, Ellen White. So here we were. We didn't have mother to go home to and to figure it out. In 1919, we held a Bible conference and leaders from both sides showed up to try to hammer out a view of this, of this, of uh, what we believed about revelation and inspiration. There was the team that, that, that espoused for the more moderate view, the view I'm, that I'm talking about, the, uh, the thought-inspired view or the, the, the person-inspired view rather than the word. He was led by the, it was led by the general conference president at the time was A.G. Daniels. He had been general conference president since 1901. And he was ousted in 1922 because of his view on inspiration. The ones that believed in verbal inspiration, the team that came was led by a man named B.L. House who came to espouse the verbal inspiration view. After the ouster of Elder Daniels and all the other leaders with the moderate view of inspiration by 1925, the denomination decides to write the very first textbook, college textbook on revelation and inspiration. You know who they chose to write it and edit it? B.L. House. Guess which view is now taught in Adventist colleges for the next five decades? That's how we got to where we are. That's why we argue about whether or not the Bible writers were infallible. That's why we argue whether or not Ellen White was infallible. By the way, it's a whole lot easier to leave it on the page. It's a whole lot easier to leave it on the page and call everything else literal. Because the number one thing that it allows me to do is it allows me to take it literally, to go to something that has no blood, no compassion, no mercy, and it allows me then to do what I want, when I want, to other sinners who I don't feel need the gospel that the Bible was written for. And that's how these nationalist Christians get away with what they're getting away with. You tell me I'm wrong, they come at you with what? With a scripture. It's all led to a shall not be moved attitude. So it makes change not hard. It makes change what? Impossible. We never change that. We never grow. We never get to be the people that we claim that we are, people of present truth, of last day revelation, growing more and more to be like who? To be like Jesus. If we take that view of his word, we're never going to get there. Just real quick, some closing notes on biblical literism. Number one, I'll tell you what, I'll tell you the problem that I have with your verbally inspired Bible, the problem I have with biblical literism, okay, is that number one, it looks like on paper that it has absolutely no problem with slavery. Most slave owners felt they were allowed by God to enslave. You ask any slave owner who was a Christian in the South in the 17, 18, and all the way up to the 1900s why they felt they could enslave another human being, they opened their Bibles. I know that the Bible does not espouse what you would call chattel slavery. I know that. And the only reason I know that 
is because I believe God loves every human being. And it was proven to me. But they'll pull out the book of Philemon and they'll say, see, even Paul told the slave he had to go back to his owner. Fugitive Slave Act. So there it is, verbally inspired, okay? There it is, there's the story. Are you with me, Grady? I'm right, right? In Philemon, right? He told him to go back. Forget the fact that he told him to go back and he told the owner to love him like he loved his own son, but he just, you know, he sent the, the slave back is, is, is what he did. So there it is. Paul says that you have to send the slaves back. Ellen White writes that every Adventist should ignore the Fugitive Slave Act. And if you came across, if you came across a fugitive slave, that the church, the Adventist church, was to do everything to keep them from being sent back. We were abolitionists. We didn't get there because we believed in a verbally inspired Bible. I believe if you would have tried to bring Ellen White Philemon back then, she would have told you what the context is. She would have allowed the love of God to live and breathe even in that what appears to be plain teaching about what you should do with a slave. You with me? I don't like how verbally inspired Bible treated people by enslaving them. The verbally inspired Bible has no problem with the patriarchy. I do not like the way the verbally inspired Bible treats women in this church. It's led to abuse. It's led to othering. You know, I didn't even go to scripture anymore. If you talk to me about the ordination of women, I didn't even go to scripture anymore. What I do is I come back at you with a list of names. Sherilyn, Crystalline, Clarissa, Alicia, all women pastors I've met in my life who preach and pastor circles around most of the men that I've known in our profession. Called by the same Holy Spirit as me. But there's three lines in three letters that we use to say that they, that, or, or to even tell them we don't have an example of a New Testament ordained woman. We go back at them with that. And what are they supposed to do when they know they've been called by God and got it from the same place that I got it? went through the same education that I went through, went through the same ordination process that I went through. But if we believe in a verbally inspired Bible, those words say it or they don't say it. So we begin to even use what they don't say. You can't do that with a living word. You with me? You cannot do that with the living word. If you want a biblical example of it, right? There is more biblical evidence, tons of biblical evidence at that first Jerusalem council that they should have been circumcising, that the Gentiles should have had to have circumcised and been circumcised before they could join the, this brand new way, if you will, Christian church. Because the biblical evidence is overwhelming. There is more biblical evidence that we should be circumcised, men, than there is for the seventh-day Sabbath in all of the Hebrew scriptures. So the Jerusalem council was faced with something. What they were faced with was the word said, the word on the paper, the word on the tablet said they need to be circumcised. But the Holy Spirit was saying something else. 
Because Paul and Peter were coming back saying, when we preached the gospel, when we finally got around to telling them how much God loved them and tell them about Jesus, guess what? The Holy Spirit fell on all of them right in front of us. I don't like how the verbally inspired Bible treats people by enslaving them. I don't like how it treats women. I don't like how it treats sinners. You can argue that this empire, this, this last substitute of the church that the beast tries to get us to, to buy into, Christian empire, if you will, didn't work with the first beast, or at least we were able to recognize the falseness of the first one. It's the second one. He's doing it again. The only thing that's changed is the national power that's being used. In other words, if we buy into it, we would say, okay, well, the problem with the first beast was the power was wrong. We don't like the church part. This one's good, and the power's good, because it's Christian and it's American. I could argue that a verbally inspired Bible calls us to Christian empire. Because that's what it seems that most of the Old Testament is written about. Having a, a, a Christian nation, having a Jewish nation, if you will. By the way, how did it work for Israel to try to dictate a relationship with God through a civil government? How did it work? It never worked. That's why it's in the Bible, by the way. And the only reason I know this, the only reason I know it, the only reason you know it is because we've allowed God to give just a little bit of room for his Holy Spirit to come in and to get us to question, to ask, what do we believe? Why are we here? Verbally inspired passages make most descriptive passages prescriptive. You don't have a choice. Verbally inspired scriptures say that if God wrote it and it says that, that, that you know, thousands of people had to die for their sin, that's it. That now makes it prescriptive for God. That now makes it prescriptive. In other words, God is prescribing that for us when actually all it's doing is describing what happened. And we forget that a literal word on the page can be very unchristlike in practice. Jesus had that problem with his religious leaders. He had that problem with the church of his day. He has that problem with us, with the church of our day. being mean, intolerant, and hateful, but being biblical at the same time. You can't do that with the living word. It's much easier to be a biblical Christian than to be a Christ-like one. There, that's my bumper sticker for today. It's a whole lot easier to be a biblical Christian than to be a Christ-like one.
Because what primarily concerns a biblical Christian is to make sure that we literally hold, if you will, the inerrancy of the Bible. And what concerns us then, what concerns us is that we use that as our evangelistic thrust. We carry around something that we believe is perfect and we shove it in people's faces. Well, I'm asking you this, that, that it may have worked you know, a couple hundred years ago when a lot of people were Christians and we were Christians who were looking to further their Christianity, but what about the growing number of people today who, have, who hold no authority to the Bible whatsoever and we're still approaching them with our Bibles? People that are increasingly hostile to the Bible. By the way, increasingly hostile because of these pretend Christians who pretend to be biblical Christians. And they watch and they see how they treat other people. They watch and they see how they treat sinners. And so when you show up with your Bible, they'll look at the Bible and say, I got a problem with that. Because I saw somebody reading from that the other day and espousing views that I'm not sure that God ever wanted for us to have. I have a testimony, he said, that is greater than John's. The works that the Father has given me to complete, the very works that I'm doing, testify on my behalf that the Father has sent me. The Father who sent me has himself testified on my behalf. You've never heard his voice nor seen his form. You do not have his word abiding in you because you do not believe him who he has sent. A Christian nationalist is perfectly pleased with Jesus looking at him and saying, you've never seen me or beheld my form. Because what they'll do is they'll pick up the Bible and they'll say, but see what a good Bible student I am. I thank you, O oh Lord. I'm not like that tax collector over there. I'm not a thief, I'm not a rogue, I'm not an adulterer. The Pharisee, that Pharisee, only related to God by the tablet. He only related to God what was written on the tablet. I'm perfect because I do not break the law. But he's willing to look at another man and think that he is more than him. And he's looking God in the eye to do it, by the way. It says that he looked God right in the eye and said, I may not be perfect, but I'm so much better than him. That's as far as we'll get with an inerrant scripture, by the way. That's as far as you're gonna get, which means we'll still fall way short of being what? Of being Christ-like, of being loving, of being merciful, of being compassionate. You search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life. And it is they, they that testify on my behalf. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. As long as the church continues to not come to Jesus to have life, then we, we will gladly accept this substitute. Leaves us prime open for nationalism, leaves us prime open to worship something else. I'm trying to unlock, we're, we, that's what we're trying to do, right, is to unlock Laodicea's door. Well, one of the things that has us locked in Laodicea's door is believing what the scriptures actually do for us. Because we've been locked behind that door with our Bibles. And we don't let anybody tell us that we're not good Bible students. But Jesus is on the outside knocking. And we're still telling him we don't need him. I'm rich, I have need of, 
Nothing. By the way, Jesus on paper is just as dead as the tablets. He's reduced to a measuring stick. If you leave Jesus on the paper and you say, oh, I'm good, I'll always look at what, I'll always read about what Jesus says. I'm gonna leave him there on the paper. By the way, now he becomes the measuring stick just like the law was. In other words, now we compare ourselves to Jesus every day and how are we going to match up? But Christ in us, Christ the fulfillment of the law, Christ our righteousness, it's just words on paper until we let him incarnate us. And that's what he's looking to do. Laodicea is not a literal church where he's just gonna walk in the door. Laodicea is you and me, it's our temple. He'll come in to us and eat with us. In other words, nourish us. Give us life every single day. Will we make mistakes? Yes. I write these things to you, my little children, so that you may not sin. But when you do, you have an advocate with Jesus Christ our Lord. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and true, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. Let me, I know we're up on it, but let me leave you with one last example. In Numbers 15, God is just giving uh, instructions on how to be holy. He's just, he's, he's doing this, uh, as, as a matter of fact, he's telling them how long to, you know, that, that they should attach tassels and stuff like that. And he's, he's telling them all, uh, you know, all of this and what to do and what not to do. It's just, it's just this long prescription that you read you know, in some of the sections of the Torah, again, you know, with Moses writing it down, right? But then all of a sudden, in the middle of it, there's this narrative. All of a sudden, in the middle of it, 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 it goes from his instruction to actual real life. And I'm not sure why Moses decides to put it there. Maybe it's just that that's where he was writing and this actually happened. But in the middle of it, we're told that there was a man that they come across and they look outside on the Sabbath and he's gathering sticks. <laughs> and it's amazing, they don't know what to do. See, because they thought that the law was clear. They thought it was absolutely clear. This is the first time they've ever seen somebody out on the Sabbath gathering sticks. In fact, they go and they arrest him and then they, they kind of put him under house arrest and since they don't know what to do, they just leave him there and they go get Moses. Moses comes and he says, what was he doing? Gathering sticks on the Sabbath. And you all know what they did, right? Moses said, let's do what God told us to do. They took him out and they stoned him to death. In accordance, and Moses writes, in accordance to what God had revealed to me, is what he said. There it is on paper, God's word. In fact, Moses said, God said, right? There it is on paper. Now I wanna ask you something. What would have happened if Jesus had been standing there? Because we have an example that Jesus did something with that law, right? See, because the law said that adulterers were supposed to be stoned too. So in other words, uh, violating another part of the commandment, violating the, what is it, the sixth as opposed to the fourth, and, and, and you all know what Paul said about the law, you violate one and you violated what? Them all, okay? 
And she was guilty. She was caught in the very act. And Jesus said what? Let any of you without sin cast the first stone. What do you think would have happened if Jesus had been standing there that day? By the way, it left them open, right? God said he was gonna kill people, he was gonna kill them all once, and Moses said, don't do that. He said, what will people say about you? And, and God actually let Moses think that he changed his mind. God stood up for all of Israel. What do you think would have happened if Moses would have stood up and said, not this guy? It was just sticks. You think God still would have commanded him to stone them? You with me? So when I read Numbers 15, I don't look and say, he deserved it. I know better than to collect sticks on the Sabbath. I'm a Sabbath keeper. Give me a rock. I read it now. And I, I wish I was moved enough to weep, but my heart is still hard. But, but at least there's a, there's a point in there where I read it now and I say, no. I don't care what it says. I care what Jesus does. You with me? Just remember what the written word would allow you to do that a living word will never allow you to do. And I praise God he's still walking with us teaching that. Thank you for, for uh, staying on board with me. Thank you for the time. I really appreciate it.